I want us to bring, us our, bring to our attention um, a very familiar book from the Old Testament. But we're going to talk about it and bring it into a new and relevant light, hopefully. And hopefully we're going to present some things and say some things this morning, Dr. O, that we may not have ever really looked at in this perspective. So I want to bring our attention to, to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Y'all so kind, y'all started the clock over. Thank you, Demarcy. I know that was you. <laughs> Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 in the NLT. Okay? And here's how it reads. During the third year of King Jehoiakim reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select, here's what the king says now, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years. Everybody say three years. And then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. And he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Brothers and sisters, for the next few moments, I, I want to use as a subject identity theft. Identity theft. Sister Doris, people will steal your ideas. Just ask Elizabeth Maggie, whose idea was stolen by a man named Charles Darrow. In 1903, she invented a board game called the Landlord Game. 
And this game was to demonstrate the tragic effects of land grabbing. Well, Darrow grabbed her idea and repackaged it and introduced it to the world. And right now, it's still a household favorite today, and you know the game as Monopoly. <laughs> or how about the social media giant Facebook, whose founder, Mark Zuckerberg, was accused by three of his former classmates of stealing their idea. Facebook ended up settling the case for a reported $65 million dollars. People will steal your ideas. But, Brother Jerry, people will steal your identity. America's largest fast food chain is McDonald's. It was started by the McDonald brothers. They hired a man by the name of Ray Kroc as a business partner. And this business partner was uh, there to help with expansion and product branding. But Croc slowly began to position himself as the dominant player. And when it was all said and done, the McDonald brothers didn't even have the right to have their name on their building. Croc had taken their identity. Identity theft comes in various forms. In 2021, a reported five point million cases of identity theft happened right here in the United States. And in most of these cases, as you know, because some of you may have been victims of this, someone pretends to be you. They take your name, your birth date, your social security number, and they open up accounts in your name, which can ruin your credit and purchasing power. But if you do become a victim of identity theft in America, at least there's a little hope of resolution and restitution. But what do you do when a king demands that you trade in your identity for the one he wants you to have? Oh, here's a more relevant question. What do you do when the culture tries to coerce you to conform to its way of thinking. Let's examine this scene together. According to Donald Weissman, who's an historian, he says that Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem on March 16, 597 B.C. He marched on the land. He took the spoils of the land and drove the people from the land. And according to verse 3, the king ordered his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal and noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, that Daniel and the other Hebrew friends were not just common guys. They weren't poor. They weren't destitute. They weren't peasants, but they came from nobility. They came from status. They came from stability and financial security. But in the blink of an eye, Daniel goes from status to servant. I guess he could have attempted to plead his case. He could have attempted to plead his rights. But who would have listened to him? Who apologized for the injustice 
of being stripped from his native land, taken from his family and robbed of his future. There wasn't no Johnny Cochran, no Benjamin Crump. It was just an order and an edict from a king that would not go undenied. He was, by all accounts, a tragedy of war. And this brings up the age-old question, though, doesn't it? Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, you never hear one bad word about Daniel's character. Nowhere is it written that Daniel disobeyed or dishonored God. He never killed anybody. He never cussed anybody out. He never, according to our knowledge, never slept with anybody's wife. But I submit to you this morning that in his trouble... Daniel discovered and experienced God in ways he wouldn't have otherwise. And that's true all throughout scripture, isn't it? I mean, Adam and Eve didn't experience the undeserved provision of God until in their trouble, they discovered he was willing to clothe their nakedness. Cain didn't experience the protection of God until in his trouble, he was discovered having killed his brother Abel. Abraham wouldn't fully know the mercy of God without the trouble of being told to sacrifice his son. Paul didn't understand the grace of God until he realized that the Lord was willing to forgive him of all the trouble that he had caused the church. And you and I wouldn't know the love and forgiveness of God without the trouble of the cross. I know this is last week's news, but I want to remind you, they stretched him wide. They hung him high. He bowed his head, and for you and for me, he died. That's love. Listen, trouble is trying, but for the believer, trouble is just a gateway to experience the goodness and grace of God. Scripture says, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, the called according to his purpose. Daniel and his companions went through hell, but they had help from heaven. Now look at verse 3 and 4 with me. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. He said, select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. He said, make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning. They are gifted uh, with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The first warning I want to give you this morning, my brothers and sisters, is this. Beware of Babylon. Beware of Babylon. Listen to me carefully. One of the most effective ways that the world alters your identity is by taking advantage of the time you spend in unfamiliar territory. The king has removed Daniel from his homeland and he tends to indoctrinate him in Babylon's culture, in Babylon's literature, and in Babylon's way of worship. 
Listen to me carefully. Put this on the screen. You know that you're in Babylon when what you're being taught doesn't agree with what God's word says. I'm going to say that again. You know that you're in Babylon when what you are being taught what they're trying to teach you, what they're trying to instill in you, what they're trying to indoctrinate in you does not agree with what God's word says. And make no mistake about it. Babylon can be as much a spiritual condition as it is a physical place. When you find yourself giving in to the culture around you, you're in Babylon. When you have unbiblical influences in your head, you in Babylon. When you care more about your zodiac sign than sound doctrine, you're in Babylon. When your own voice is louder than God's voice, you're in Babylon. Can I take that a little further? When you can't speak Jesus' name openly in school or on your jobs or with your friends, you're in Babylon. When your environment celebrates sin, you're in Babylon. When your educational system tells you that God did not create the heavens and the earth, that the Big Bang did it, I want you to know you're in Babylon. In Babylon or foreign territory, you can find yourself removed from the church, removed from your family of faith, removed from corporate worship, removed from the people who would help keep you accountable. And this is why it is so crucially and vitally important that our children get a strong, firm Christian foundation before going off to school, off to the military and away from our homes. Otherwise, you run the risk of sending them away naked and unprepared. Dr. Eric Mason wrote a very good book entitled Urban Apologetics. And one of his contributing authors, whose name is Sarita Lyons, wrote a chapter in his book describing how for a season in her college life, her faith failed her. Sarita confessed that there were several contributing factors that led to her falling away. A bad breakup with a boyfriend, an already weak Christian foundation, ignorance of her heritage and where she came from, and painful church hurt from male leadership. And all of these things came about a combination that made it easy for her to become prey. And she got with this African comedic group that taught her that black women were gods. And the men called her sister and queen, speaking to her in ways that gave her affirmation and dignity. All the while, they were pulling her away from her morality. And within three years, Sarita went from a Christ-centered environment to a cult worshiping idols, and burning sage to foreign gods. And brothers and sisters, I noticed something unique about the time span of three years. It seems as though that this is a standard time frame for either learning or unlearning. Stay with me now. 
In Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar said the captives were to be trained for three years. And after that, they would enter into the king's service. Jesus' earthly ministry, where he spent considerable and constant time with his disciples, was a little more than three years. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul said that he spent three years in the desert with no one but the Lord learning and unlearning. And then in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the church of Ephesus, he tells those church leaders to remember that the three years he was with them, he was constantly watching and caring over their souls. And it dawned on me, brothers and sisters, that the reason why college and trade school and even the military can be problematic and detrimental to our children is because they spend a considerable amount of time away from sound doctrine. Three years or better in foreign hostile territory. Parents often want to know what happened to their child when they went off to college. I can tell you three years. They used to believe in God. They went to church. They attended Sunday school. They went to summer camp. They did all those things. But what happened? Three years. And I can hear some of you asking this question. How can three years do so much? It's because at home, many of us as parents do so little. In the 17, 18 years that our children spend at home with us, very little spiritual training and investing is taking place. I mean, we care more about academics and athletics than the things of God. And we send them to church, but it's important to know that sending them to church and teaching them how to be the church are two totally different things. And this is why EBC... It is so important for us as a church to take seriously the responsibility to children and youth ministries. We've got to be intentional about building a bridge that connects our high school students to adulthood. When they leave this place, they still need us. They need those care packages. They need those cards. They need those letters of encouragement. They need those texts. They need that money. They need those baskets that you send them. I, I can't help but, but, but recall um, uh, when I was in school, in college, uh, Jackson State, uh, my mom would, 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 would send care packages. And, and, and during Easter time, my mom would send me an Easter basket <laughs> while I was in school. And, um, you know, I, I get teased about it. My friends return to brothers. They want to make light of it, make fun of it. Everybody was laughing until they looked in the box. And then everybody wanted some of my basket. <laughs> and listen, I'm in my mid-40s right now, and, and, and I hope my mom and dad are listening to me right now. Mama, I want my Easter basket. <laughs> I need my Easter basket. But in all seriousness, brothers and sisters, You'll never lose when you invest in a young person's life. We've got to be consistent about making connections in order to keep them committed. Look at verses 4 through 7. He says, select only 
the healthy, the, the strong, the good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. He said, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Verse 5, then the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter into the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from all the tribe of Judah. Verse 7, the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, uh, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Um, you all will remember just a few short years ago uh, when President Obama was, was in office, um, his key signature piece um, was, was the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they call it Obamacare. And he, he fought for four years to try to get this passed, this legislation passed. And years after it even passed, the Republican Party ran in total opposition of the Affordable Care Act. And what they said was, and what they promised to the world was, is that was going to be a repeal and replace. And in the case of Daniel and his friends, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a repeal and replace plan. He says, we're going to change their names. We're going to retrain them, re-educate them in our language and in our culture and in our literature. Here it is. He wants them to think like us, to talk like us, to eat like us, to learn like us, to live like us. We want our culture so ingrained and embedded in their minds and in their hearts that it undoes everything that they had previously been taught. And it was going to take three years to do it. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters. The goal was never training. It was transformation. And it's vitally important that you know that the world is seeking to transform how you think, how you feel, how you respond, what you learn, and how you live. But the Bible has something to say about that too. Because in Romans 12 and 2, here's how it reads. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will is, which for you, which is good and perfect and pleasing. He knows, God knows that the world is going to do its best, its finest to indoctrinate you and to change your worldview and to change the culture in which you live. He says, but don't pay attention to the world. Pay attention to my word. And when you pay attention to my word, then I will transform your mind. I will transform the way you think. I will transform the way you respond. I will transform the way you act. And when you are transformed by him, he says, you will know what my good and perfect and pleasing will is for your life. 
If you don't know what God's will is for your life, the problem possibly is you hadn't been transformed by his word. If you can live all of your life into your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and never understand what God wants from you, it's because you have not been transformed by the power of his word. And my encouragement to you is, is don't be too bad on yourself or down on yourself. No matter where you are, if God has given you breath and life and strength, start right now. Start today. Make a commitment to the Lord where you say, Lord, I'm going to invest my time, my talents and my resources in your word. And I want you, Lord, to transform the way I think, to transform the way that I act, to transform the way that I respond, to transform my relationships that I have with my wife and with my children and even the community in which I live. God's word has the power to transform you into the men and women that he wants you to be. Daniel's name changed. His place changed. His position changed. But his character remained the same. Daniel never lost sight of who he was. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, verse 8 says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. And here's some questions, brothers and sisters, that I want you to ask yourself. Young people, what are you determined not to do to hold on to your identity in Christ? What actions can you personally take to help you not to defile yourself? Which individuals in your friend groups you need to let go? What influences do you have that are hindering you from hearing God? What idols do you possess that hold more power over you than God's word? These are questions that we've got to ask ourselves. Again, think about this now. Daniel was a young man, but he was a young man who was determined to live and to stand on his standards and convictions. And this proves to me, young people, that you don't have to fall victim to the identity thieving culture. But this is where our parents and our church come in. Daniel was able to pour out what he believed because someone had taken the time to pour into him. The foundation had been laid and Daniel stood on it. Now this brings us to our study now in, in, in Ephesians um, because God, of course, has something to say about our responsibility. Um, look with me now in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4. You know, we're going through this study in Ephesians. If you haven't joined us on Wednesdays, this would be a good time to join us. Um, we're learning about what Paul had to say to the church of Ephesus and what he's saying to us now. And, and, and in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, here's how it reads. It says, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come into such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown away by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with the clever lies that sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the church. Do y'all see that in its totality? Paul says that God has uniquely gifted the church certain gifts, and those gifts come in the form of people. He says, I've given you as the church everything that you need. I've given the apostles. I've given the prophets. I've given the evangelists. I've given the pastors. I've given the teachers. And he also labels out what our responsibility is as such. He says, your responsibility, if you have any of these gifts, he says, your responsibility is to equip my people to do his work and to build up the body of church. The body of Christ, which is the church of God. Now, now watch this. We, we've got to be very mindful, brothers and sisters, that as ministers and God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are not building up ourselves over God. See, many churches open up and have leadership that cares more about what they drive, where they live, and how much the offering is that's coming into the place. And we've got to be very mindful that God has given us a unique responsibility. And that responsibility is to teach and to preach and to minister the word of God to the people of God. And he says that when we do this, the effort is to bring us into unity with one another. That's the word that we've been talking about over the past few years, unity. That's the mission of the church, that we will come into unity, but not only unity, but in maturity. You've got to be mature to be unified and unified to be mature. And that's the responsibility of the church leaders. But here's the thing. You and I both know that this won't take place fully until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And that's why it is so incredibly important that we don't stop doing what God has called us to do. Now, if God has equipped you, if he has called you, then get busy doing what he said do. This is the responsibility of church leaders. But guess what? You have a responsibility, too. You've got a responsibility to your family. As a husband, you've got a responsibility to your wife. As a wife, you've got a responsibility to your husband. As family, you've got a responsibility to your children. And when they see that working the way that God intended for it to work, you will continue to build up his body. When we do our jobs as teachers and pastors and evangelists, and you allow us to teach you by being committed and consistent, 
The culture will not be able to influence you and steal your identity. And parents, you remember that you are in partnership with the church. Whatever ministries are going on here at EBC or across the world, it's not solely the church's responsibility and job to teach your children. In fact, the church is supposed to partner with you and you partner with the church. The church simply reinforces what you deposit at home. If there's no prayer at home, if there's no reading of the word at home, then there's no power in the home. If there's no power in the home, there will be no power in your communities. If there's no power in your communities, then you will never have power in the church. It all starts at home. But when we come together in this perfect union, we can do exactly what God has called us to do. Let me give you a few takeaways, and then I'll be on on my way. Takeaway number one. If you find yourself away in an unfamiliar, hostile environment, don't lose hope. The Lord may have sent you there to be his ambassador of truth. If you follow Daniel's life closely, you'll note that God used him to speak truth to the kings. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel took a stand to honor God over the government. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was having this terrifying dream. But by God's power, Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamt and what the dream meant. In chapter 4, he warned the king that his pride was about to get him in trouble. But if he repented, maybe God would stop the judgment that's heading his way. In chapter 5, another king had taken the throne. And he foolishly drank from the cups of the house of God. And here was old Daniel a servant, a slave, confronting a king, telling him he was about to die and his kingdom would be divided. And in chapter 6, the one that we are so familiar with, Daniel was told that he could not pray to the Lord. And if he prayed to the Lord, he'd be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel heard what the edict was and went straight to his house, the Bible said, knelt down and prayed. And when they saw him do that, they threw him into the lion's den. But the lions of Persia were no match for the lion of Judah. (laughs) For God shut his mouth, the lion's mouth, and Daniel walked out unharmed. All I'm trying to say is, is that when God is your source and you are God's ambassador, he knows how to keep you in hostile environments. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, God may take you away to draw you near. Number two, sacrificing while suffering gets God's attention. Sacrificing while suffering gets God's attention. Daniel and his friends were already suffering. They had been stripped 
from their land. They had been forced to serve a foreign king. They knew that their king and their kingdom had been wiped out. And they could have easily said, well, God has stopped providing for us and we're going to stop serving him. I'm done with my faith. (laughs) One of my favorite movies, Katie, is, is, is Gladiator. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, and, and, and in Gladiator, Russell Crowe plays the part of a general named Maximus. Um, and, and, and things happen, and, and he turned against the, 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 the king, uh, who was not a legitimate king, and, and the king went after him. The king gave an order and an edict to kill him and his family. And, and, and Maximus got away from the king and his soldiers, but his family didn't. They hung and burned his family, his wife and his son. And next thing you know, you, Maximus finds himself um, as a slave, as a gladiator, having to fight every day for his very life. Thinking about all the things that had transpired because he would pray to his gods every day. God protect my, my, my children and my wife, my wife, and my children. Let the gods protect my wife and my children. Let the gods protect my wife and my children. He would pray that often. And his gods let him down. He got to the place and the point where he lost his faith. And he took a piece of pottery. And, and he had his gods' names on his shoulder. And he began to press into his, his shoulder, scraping off the names of his gods. And another slave went to him, another gladiator, and said, well, won't that infuriate your gods? And he smiled and said, yeah. But because Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah honored God, God honored them. <laughs> they sacrificed eating choice foods because of their relationship with the Lord. Look at what the Bible says in verses 17 through 19. It says, God gave these four men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed them as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered into the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any other magician and enchanter in his entire kingdom. Because sacrificing while suffering gets God's attention. But thirdly, brothers and sisters, and last, The enemy may have the power to change your work ID, but never give him the power to change who you are, the real you. He may have the power to change your work ID, but never let him change your identity. Verses 6 and 7 says it this way. Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah 
were four of the young men chosen from all the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shedrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Have you ever called the IRS or any other governmental agencies? Um, oftentimes when you call them and, 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 and uh, God knows you hate when you have to talk to them. Um, but, but when they answer, typically they give you their badge number as a way of identifying who they are. Um, um, that badge number is, is, is attached to what they do, but it's not their real identity. Um, Daniel's name identified his character. His name means God is my judge. And so he says, in essence, they may call me Belteshazzar, but that's just my work ID. That's not who I am. My name is Daniel, and God is my judge. They call me Shadrach, but that's just my work ID. That's not who I am. My name is Hananiah, which means the Lord has been gracious. They call me Meshach, but that's just my work ID. It's not who I am. My name is Mishael which means who is like God. They call me Abednego, but that's just my work ID. It's not who I am. My name is Azariah, which means God helps. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we've been accustomed to calling these men out of their name. If I were to ask any of you at any point in time, what are the names of the three Hebrew, boy, Hebrew boys, you would undoubtedly say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I want to remind you that that's not their names. It's just their work ID. Here it is. The world may call you out of your name. They may label you by what you do. But that's not who you are. Satan and the culture around you will try to rob you of your identity. Satan is going to remind you of your past. He's going to tell you that there's no hope, and he's going to just use all those things that, that you did in your former life to try to help you stay defeated. But when Satan tells you that you are defeated, brothers and sisters say, no, I'm not defeated, I'm delivered. <laughs> What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Satan will remind you what you used to be, but God's word will remind you of who you are. When you find yourself in an unfamiliar, hostile environment, don't lose hope. Don't give in. God may have you there for a reason. Sacrificing while suffering gets his attention. And the enemy may have the power 
to change your work ID, but never give him the power to change your identity. Remember who you are in Christ. For our God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or even think according to the power that worketh within us. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed.